that God is bad for doing this, but yet we neglect that it. it says that the everybody's corrupt and violence is filling the earth. As if that's better. See, the reality is this, is God is slow to anger. And God loves mercy. And God had given humanity every chance it needed. But humanity was bent on destruction. And when the right response to evil happens, people say, why is God so mean? It's the same thing that went on in the garden, isn't it? They want to blame God. Nobody wants to take responsibility. Building an ark from specific instructions for a flood that seemed impossible, only a devoted person to God would say yes to that. But that's what Noah was, obedient. And as Pastor Daniel will teach today, obedience is the highest form of worship to the Father. As we commit to obedience to Him, He is praised. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 9, with part one of our message entitled, The Flood. My goal for the day is to try and take the entire flood account, which is about three, almost three chapters in one uh, 35-minute clip. Why are you guys laughing? I wasn't meant to be a joke, <laughs> but I, I know why you guys are laughing, because you're thinking to yourself, the chances of Pastor Daniel making it through three chapters in 35 minutes is, you guys know how it goes. All right. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, right away, we get a recap of what we just saw. First, we see that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We saw that at the very end of Genesis chapter 5, which is kind of setting us up. It says in verse 9, we learn three things about Noah. One, that Noah was a just man. Second, he was perfect in his generation. And third, that he walked with God. Now, what's important for us to realize is that this word just in the Hebrew is, comes from the same root as the word righteous. It's the root of the word sadek. Now, it's interesting that righteousness means literally being right, right living. Justice, if you think about it, it comes from the same root word. Justice is the rightness that an individual has as it relates to society. I talked about this idea of justice, God's heart for justice. And justice in the world is the rightness of God being lived out in community. So we find here that Noah was righteous, that Noah walked rightly in the eyes of God. Now, does this mean that Noah was without sin? We know the answer to that is no. We're going to see more about that later. But the reality is is that Noah was doing his best to do it right. 
We also find that he was perfect in his generation. Some translations have the word blameless for this. It means complete or sound. It means that not only was Noah righteous or just, but Noah had integrity as well. And it says that third, that he walked with God. And remember, we saw Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, that in this whole list of deaths, Enoch is there. It says, and Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. And so in a lot of ways, the reality of living a life with God and in Christ, it's about finding life in the midst of a world of death. And in a lot of ways, that is exactly what the Christian faith is. It is a community of people who is a colony of life in the midst of a civilization of death. So when Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, when Jesus talks about eternal life, being knowing God and knowing Jesus, the reality is, is that we get to have life in a world that is surrounded by death. And Noah here is a great example of this. Now, it says he had sons, and in verses 11 and 12, it recaps for us what we had just seen in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, that the earth was corrupt before God, the earth was filled with violence, God looked upon the earth, indeed it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So there's this man, Noah, who's like a diamond in the rough. He's looking at the world, and the world is full of violence. It's fascinating, because if you think about the day and age we live in, that would be a, a pretty profound way that you can describe the day and age we live in right now, that the world is violent. It's been corrupted. And see, and this is why I place so much emphasis as a teacher and as a pastor here at Crossroads about us taking stock of our own lives. Because the reality is, is we live in a world that is corrupted. It's corrupted from God's truest intentions. Now, our job is not to say, oh, that's bad. Our job, instead of just saying, that's bad, we're supposed to live right. We're supposed to live differently. The body of Christ is meant to be subversive to the predominant paradigm of the world system. So the world may be selfish and greedy, but we should be generous and self-giving. Because isn't that who Jesus is? Isn't that how Jesus has been? And what's gone on, I think, is that for Christians, we believe in Jesus, but a lot of times we're not willing to be as Christ is in the world. Jesus gave his life for the world. He asked us to give up our life for him, and then we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. But it's interesting that Noah was that. Noah was a subversive force in the world. The world was going one way. It was corrupted. It was full of violence. But yet you have Noah was just. He was righteous. He was blameless. And he walked with God. And would, would to God that that would be a perfect picture of people who call themselves Christians in the 21st century. That the world is going its way and we are charting a new course. We're, we're following Jesus on a path that he blazed. And we are unashamed to go against the current of the way the world is going. Just because it's heading that way doesn't mean we need to head that way with it. Now in verse 13, we start to see the plan. It says this, so this is Genesis 6, 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. 
And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's with 50 cubits and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh and which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now imagine this. There's violence, and now God is bringing judgment. Now, right away, right away we need to stop and explain something, because how often, so many people read this like, you know, who wants to worship a God who will destroy the earth? There's no doubt there's some people in here who say, why would I want to believe in such a God? But what's interesting is we, we, we look at it that God is bad for doing this, but yet we neglect that it says that the, everybody's corrupt and violence is filling the earth. As if that's better. See, the reality is this, is God is slow to anger. And God loves mercy. And God had given humanity every chance it needed. But humanity was bent on destruction. And when the right response to evil happens, people say, why is God so mean? It's the same thing that went on in the garden, isn't it? They want to blame God. Nobody wants to take responsibility. It's like what we're living in right now. The Democrats blame the Republicans. The Republicans blame the Democrats. And, but yet we have a two-party system. And we have both parties in office in different places. And everyone's trying to blame each other when no one's going to say, hey, look, we all did this. We all messed this up. But everyone wants to blame somebody. See, the reality is that at this point, humanity is spiraling. And God has to intervene. He has to intervene. In his justice, God has to intervene. Now, people always struggle with this. They're like, I don't understand how you can believe that. And I always put it this way. If you think about it, imagine there was a person, a horrible person, right, arrested here in Clark County for molesting and murdering 100 children. And we would all agree that that's horrific. And thank God I'm, I'm not using a true story, right? And this guy goes before a judge, right? And the judge says, look, I'm a loving judge. He can just go free. What's the public response to that? Right? Anger. Right? Because you say to yourself, it's not loving for a righteous judge to be so loving that he lets somebody who's hurt people go free. (laughs) You can make the connection now. You can make the connection to why God is right for judging when he's exhausted his mercy on somebody. It's righteous for God to do this. It's wrong for him to let it slide. So what is it? what's his plan? God's plan is this. He says to Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So it's fascinating because God decides that he's going to make a way out, a boat, an ark, It's interesting that it has rooms in it, compartments, and we're going to see why in a second. It says, covered inside and out with pitch. The same word is used in the rabbinical writings for the word tar. This was for waterproofing. It's also been said that John D. Rockefeller, after reading this passage, began to look in the Middle East for oil and found it, and the Rockefellers became a very rich family. Sometimes there's little blessings for reading your Bibles, folks. 
You imagine someone else being like, oh, I didn't even think of that because he knew that tar was a petroleum byproduct. And so, so that's how that goes. Now, he gives the dimensions for this in verse 15. The length shall be 300 cubits. Now, a cubit is about a foot and a half long. Most people would say that the ancient measurement of a cubit is the distance from your, the crook of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, which, I mean, of course, everybody's a little different in their size, but it comes out to be about 18 inches. So when you look at something that's 300 cubits, it's about 450 feet long. The width, of course, is, it says 50 cubits, which is 75 feet wide, and its height is 45 feet wide. Now, it's interesting that this 6 to 1 ratio length to width is still used to build battleships. Kind of cool, huh? So much for these archaic people who don't understand anything. The six to one ratio, height to width, same way they still build modern battleships. So if, if you take it out, there's about 97,000 square feet within the ark. Now, what's fascinating is if you notice, there's going to be a window on the ark and you're going to finish it from a cubit from above and set a door of the ark in its side and you shall make it with lower second and third decks. So if you think about it, if its height is about 45 feet high, you have three decks, which is about 10 to 15 feet per deck. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Now, it's interesting that he's maximizing space. You have a lot of room in there, all right? Now, it's interesting that there's only one door. Why is there only one door? Well, of course we know why. Because all this is a picture of God saving people, and there's only one way in. There's only one way out. And when Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the door of the sheepfold, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way in. Enter by the narrow gate. See, and again, this goes, this flies in the face of our culture. Our culture struggles with this. But the reality is, is all roads do not lead to the top of the mountain. They don't. And I know it's a hard thing to say, or some people struggle with that, but if you actually really study every religion, you'll realize that all of them teach that they don't all lead to the top either. That's the thing that's funny about it. People who hold that all roads lead to the top, the reality is, is most of them have never read any of these texts in length, and all these texts tell you that that's not true. But it's very American to decide that, hey, the buffet is mine, I will eat what I want, and I'll get to where I want to get to. That's a, very, that's a very Western concept. You go anywhere else in the world, people don't hold to those type of views. It's kind of the American entitlement that's made its way into American-style spirituality. There's only one door, and that is Jesus. Now, of course, there's some windows, and we're grateful for that because as you're going to find out, there's going to be a lot of animals on it, and the windows are for ventilation, and we all say amen. Now, Look at what happens in verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing. Who's doing it? I myself. This is a God thing. God is using nature. That's what this says. I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you and of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind, will come to you 
to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourselves of all food that is eaten. That's verse 21. And you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Fascinating. God is judging. God is using nature to do the judging, right? But then, in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first time that word is used in the Bible. My covenant with you. This is an agreement between two parties. The whole Bible, you could read the whole Bible with the concept of covenant at its foundation. In a lot of ways, we understand covenant because the idea of marriage is meant to be an agreement between two people. Now, of course, we live in a day and age where half of every one of these covenants gets broken. But the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be read with this theme that the almighty God makes a covenant with humanity and he intends to keep it. This covenantal care. This is why God is called father. This is sometimes where the church is called the bride. This is all covenantal language. And although we live in a culture that doesn't value covenant, that doesn't mean that God doesn't value it. And God's faithfulness is based along covenantal lines. And I think that is why marriages, there's such an onslaught against marriages today. That's why there's a devaluing of marriage for people before they get married by trying to enjoy the benefits of marriage, mostly physically, without the, the fullness of what the covenant is meant to be, which is fidelity and faithfulness. The reason there's an onslaught against it is because marriage is meant to be a picture to the world of God's covenant. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. So God, although God's going to judge, he's making a covenant with Noah. And that covenant is though, although death is happening, you are going to be saved. That's what it is. It's beautiful because you have God's justice in verse 17, and then you have God's covenant faithfulness or grace in verse 18. And it's fascinating that God's covenant is with Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Now, it's interesting, once you get to verse 19, that God says he wants Noah to bring two of every animal into the ark, one male and one female, birds of animal, and notice birds after its kind, so different species of birds, different animals, different things that creep on the earth. Okay? So God wants to preserve all of the creation, but he's only going to preserve one family, Noah and his sons and their wives, and then male and female of every animal. That's what it says. It's interesting that God, being a good God, in verse 21, reminds him to take food for himself. And you got to love that about the Lord. Always thinking of the little things. He didn't want Noah... And, and his family to get hungry, start killing the animals that God wants to repopulate the earth with. So he says, listen, bring some food for yourselves. And I, you got to love verse 22 here, because look, and Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Obedience is the highest form of worship. I want you to write that in your journals, in your notes. Take a moment. Obedience is the highest form of of worship. God commanded it. Noah said, well, God said it. I believe it. Let's do it. 
And Noah did exactly what he was supposed to do. And so much of our Christian lives, so much of our spiritual lives gets ruined because we know what we ought to do and we choose to do something else. Now, I love my kids. My poor, you know, I was thinking about my poor kids because, I mean, they're, they're not poor kids, you know, but, you know, they're preacher's kids. I'm allowed to say that. Well, what, what that means is this, is that, is that you guys are going to all hear stories about Obadiah and Maranatha their whole lives, you know, and, and they're cute stories and we love them. But my kids are, are well-trained now. When I say, listen now, Obadiah, you cannot, you cannot use Maranatha as a tackling dummy. So Obadiah, right, when the Giants were playing in the Super Bowl, Obadiah got really into football, which you'd expect because his dad's screaming with joy at the television, you know. And so Obadiah, of course, he gets the football and he's like, okay, Maranatha, ready? And, he fl- and he's seven and she's three, almost four. And, he, and he's just like mauling her, you know, just tackling her. And she thinks it's great. I mean, she just likes the fact that her brother's playing with her, you know. And so she thinks it's great. I'm like, Obadiah, you can't tackle your sister. She's a little girl. Oh, okay, okay, Abba, he says. And you know what happens when I walk upstairs. You, you know what happens, right? Because it was fun. And Abba's the great killjoy, you know. And so sure enough, I say, Obadiah, what are you doing? Nothing. You guys know how this goes. And so I say, Obadiah, what did Abba say? He said, oh, don't tackle Maranatha. And what are you doing? I'm tackling Maranatha. I'm like, Obadiah, what do we call that? Disobedience. <laughs> and me and Obadiah, we got this thing down now. But you know what? What about us? God says this, we do something else. What do we call that? Disobedience. Obedience is the highest form of worship. We give God the most glory when we simply take him at his word and do what he says. And as we get older, we get really, really good at trying to justify disobedience. Noah didn't. He just did what God said. Listen to Hebrews 11.7 where Noah shows up in the hall of faith. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared the ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I love this. Noah's been divinely warned of things he has not yet seen. He moved with godly fear. And he prepared the ark and saved his household. When was the last time you thought to yourself, God has told me to trust him, walk by faith? This is what he says in his word. I'm going to move with godly fear to do that. And we know what the outcome was. I think of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The reason the church of Jesus Christ isn't what God has intended it to be, not is because God's spirit isn't enough, but because we like to be disobedient, don't we? I mean, I, every day I wake up, I'm like, Lord, you know I'm a rebellious child. Jesus is real. I wanted to thank you so much for listening in at Jesus is Real Radio. I am blessed and humbled that you would take the time and you would grow alongside of this. Now listen, 
the teaching on Christian radio, it's amazing. Praise God for all the teaching. But listen, just receiving God's word is not God's design for you as a disciple. It, Jesus didn't say, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to listen to good Christian teaching. Jesus, in effect, said, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to be part of the family of God, the people of God, the church. Now, listen. Believe me, I know, church is not easy. There's all sorts of people at church. Sometimes things don't go well. I know for many of you, you probably have church baggage because you got hurt or something went on. But listen, God designed a community of believers, a congregation, to be the primary way that we are discipled. And so listen, you need to be involved in a local church. God wants you to be growing with a group of people. You need to be in a church that teaches God's word unashamedly, not one that's going to make excuses. You need to be in a church where the pastor's going to say things that you're not going to like. Why? Because then you go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? You need to be in a church with people who aren't exactly like you. Because in church, when iron is sharpening iron and you're getting rubbed a unique way by someone who you wouldn't normally hang out with, God will do something amazing. So listen, if you're in the Portland, Vancouver metro area, come join us here at Crossroads. But wherever you are, find a good church, not only because God wants you to, but because God wants you to be blessed there and God wants to use your gifts as a blessing in the people of God. God bless you. Jesus is